Like at some point, it really does become a cognitive dissonance, if you will. You can't continuously argue that people are unaware that these happenings are occurring because they've been happening for some time. This has been going on uh, for many decades, and uh, you know, you might even say the better part of the last century or two. So uh, the question really, I think, should be, what do we do now? Coming up on The Janice Adams Show, civil rights attorney DeWitt Lacey of California on the current political climate, justice, injustice, policing, voting rights, and wrongs. Voter suppression, what's at stake? And as always, where do we go from here? First, the news. Hi, I'm Janice Adams. Welcome to the show. In the wake of police officer Derek Chauvin's conviction for the on-camera, in-your-face, in-all-our-faces murder of George Floyd, I was invited to comment on the history of race-based policing and police reform for a podcast series entitled Color Lines from Philip to Floyd. A bonus video track brought together some of the voices heard on the series. Among my fellow panelists was civil rights attorney DeWitt Lacey, who joins me on the show today. He is the lead attorney for litigation and a partner in the noted civil rights law firm helmed by John Burris. A fighter for human rights and the cause of justice, his successful verdicts have yielded millions of dollars in victim compensation, all of which is to say our country has a major problem with police violence against its citizens. Hashtag Black Lives Matter. DeWitt Lacey, thank you and welcome to the show. When you think about this conversation, police violence, how do you process it? When I think about the context, it echoes a point that you brought up, to be honest with you. Uh, and I, I felt really strongly about like at some point, it really does become a cognitive dissonance, if you will. You can't continuously argue that people are unaware that these happenings are occurring because they've been happening for some time. This has been going on uh, for many decades. And, uh, you know, you might even say the better part of the last century or two. So uh, the question really, I think, should be, what do we do now? And I think we have to be persistent and vigilant uh, in our continued fight for justice. Uh, And that means calling a spade a spade. Uh, And when we see it, telling it like it is, uh, that doesn't mean we have to uh, show indignation all the time, although sometimes it's warranted. Uh, But definitely, uh, we have to uh, approach discrimination uh, and especially this type of policing violence with the same vigor that we saw in the 60s and or with the George Floyd protests. This morning, I woke up with a question. Why does America need racism? You know, that is a a great question because I don't think it does any of us any good. I'll say this. Uh, America really uh, was built on the backs, of course, of slavery. And that system, an oppressive system, gave the benefit of having a very low labor cost, right? Well, that's gone now. And the idea of Jim Crow uh, and or segregation 
Uh, I don't think it's benefiting uh, of America as we are definitely a multicultural nation now. Uh, long gone are the days uh, where uh, Black folks did not have advocates like myself and or yourself uh, who can stand up uh, and, and speak uh, for us or on our behalf. Uh, long gone are the days uh, where, you know, there aren't venues to education or economic opportunity. Um, you know, yeah, there's still disparity for sure. Uh, but the idea of Jim Crow and or segregation and or uh, I guess one group uh, being subservient to another group uh, racially in America, I don't think does us any good uh, because what is done to the least of us? <laughs> uh, as it is said in the word, right, uh, shall be uh, for all of us, right? And so I, I think we really have to focus on making the opportunities for everybody. And the more we adopt that mindset, I think the better we will be as a nation and as a whole. It is an interesting conundrum because the people who support what you've just said, by and large, are the people who are the disfranchised. Sure. Um, the people who benefit from it. Even those who would say they don't agree with it, they're not really in the forefront of taking it down. In a way, they're the protectors and perpetrators of it, whether they want to admit that it or not. American racism was not invented by Black people. It was invented by white people. So who is going to stop this? The answer is collectively all of us. Many years ago, when folks chided Bill Cosby and said, you know, why are you always playing the race card? He said, well, who, who gave us the deck? That still holds true today. Who created the deck? Uh, and who created the system uh, as it exists right now that certainly uh, disproportionately uh, affects the well-being of, of black folks uh, in America? The answer has to be uh, that it was white folks, right? Because those were the people who were in power. Uh, those were the people who had the opportunity uh, to create the structures that exist today. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't think that can be ignored. Uh, now. You know, many people may not want to admit that, but I mean, that's just the truth of the matter. How do you come to being a civil rights attorney? What made you decide you'd take that life course? Uh, I grew up as a black man in America. And so when I decided to go to law school, it was quite natural, a fit that I would use that education to rail against a systemic oppression of folks who look like me. That's simply it. But I'll tell you, there's not many greater joys than being the blackface uh, that, you know, uh, bigoted police uh, and or uh, unfair practitioners of law enforcement powers uh, have to deal with when they're put on stand. Being the blackface when you have to deal with police, what were your pre-attorney encounters with police? They are very similar to many folks in America. No, I haven't been shot by police. Thank goodness, right? But certainly harassed, chastised. You know, I can remember many occasions, you know, walking from the gym uh, where I played basketball with my high school friends. But because I did not have a car, I had to walk home. 
you know, but I remember many times then after the practice, police would come and shine the light on you or our faces and tell us to sit down or lay on the ground uh, or always being suspected of, of being involved in some type of criminal enterprise. Were you suspected uh, or were they using that as the ruse to stop you? Sure. I, I would say it's, it's being the latter. They're using it as a ruse to harass me and, and my friends at the time uh, because I wasn't engaged in anything wrong, wrongdoing. And what's suspicious about walking down a road? I don't think much. But for whatever reason, uh, they decided to act upon that opportunity that they had uh, to kind of uh, arouse us uh, and uh, chastise us uh, and harass us. Uh, so those were my experiences uh, as a kid growing up. You know, things like that. Store owners following you around, calling the police and the police coming to check on and ask, well, is everything OK? Well, of course it is. I'm a patron just like everybody else here. You know, what's the problem? Those are the same type of experience that many uh, Black folks experience throughout America. I asked the question that way because the very fact that I'm sitting in New York, you're sitting in California, we are of different age groups. And I know to ask you simply because you are a Black man, what was your pre-professional encounter? That to me speaks volumes. Over your shoulder, I'm looking at an image. I am a man and I'm thinking of the civil rights campaign for which Dr. King gave his life for the striking sanitation workers. Carrying that is exactly their- what that's from. That's exactly oh, okay. what that's from. Um, and it was uh, a reprint. Uh, by one of the labor unions here uh, during one of the political campaigns here in California several years ago. I was actually involved in some politics in San Francisco at the time, uh, but uh, I liked it a lot. Uh, so I, I saved it and, uh, you, know, you know, my wife was kind enough to frame it for me, but I've had it up in, in my office ever since. Yeah, yeah. So I want to ask you on this conversation about your pre- professional encounters with police. If you're aware of your parents pre your professional encounters. I will tell you that my parents uh, did what they could to shield me as most parents do these days. And as I do with with my son, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Who wants their children to bear the ugliness of, of the past in America? Most people don't. However, it would be irresponsible for us as parents not to tell our children, uh, at least to make them aware that these things uh, and this terrible, I guess, burden of, of racism uh, exists because we will come in contact with it throughout our lives. And so my parents did it with me. You know, they explained to me uh, some of their interactions with law enforcement. Of course, I saw some uh, interactions that you know, my mother had with uh, law enforcement myself as a, you know, a toddler. I remember very distinctly a a circumstance where uh, an officer pulled my mother over for a traffic stop. uh, And they said that she did not stop when, you know, she did. And, you know, spoke to her very, uh, you know, I would say not in a friendly manner, 
<laughs> they didn't use any curse words, but definitely raised voices and orders and commands uh, as if, you know, she was not a respectable person, which I knew her to be. So you see those things, you know, not only with, you know, my mother or father, but with cousins uh, or, or uncles and, and aunts. And sometimes, you know, uh, folks have been jailed. You know, I had an uncle who uh, spent a, a good a portion of his adult life in jail for defending himself in a fight. Um, it's interesting that you began, though, with your mother, because so frequently and appropriately, we talk about the attacks on Black men. But a lot of people aren't aware that Sandra Bland is not an anomaly. Oh. Sandra Bland is pulled over for nonsense. Um, were she white, supposedly it was a tail light. Um, they would have slowed her down and said, by the way, do you know your tail light is is not working? And then, you that know, would have been it. that would have been it. You you then say, oh, I didn't know that, because usually when you're the one driving, you can't see your own taillight Um, or even if it's if it's a turn signal or something like that. um, It's not the usual thing to go ballistic uh, and tell someone they can't smoke in their own car. And it's a process of looking for reasons to drag this person out of the car that that is what you're seeing where did you grow up uh in california i grew up in northern california uh i'm from san jose uh a place where you know when i grew up there wasn't a lot of black folks it was Mm -hmm. a suburb you know the san francisco bay area uh my mother uh is from oakland right uh Mm -hmm. and grew up there Mm -hmm. and you know she saw uh, and from West Oakland, too. <laughs> um, so she saw a lot of, you know, bad things and terrible things happen to her older brothers. And her thought was, well, you know, if I can get my young boys, uh, I have an older brother uh, out of this environment that I won't have to worry about them coming in contact with law enforcement or gangs or drugs and things like that. So she moved us. She moved to San Jose. Uh, and uh, that's where I was born in San Jose. And I spent a, a good portion of my uh, of my childhood there. And uh, unfortunately, it, it didn't change that circumstance. Right. Black is in Oakland and mm-hmm. San Jose uh, and in New York or New Jersey. But finish Chicago. that thought. Finish that thought. It's not just about black kids growing up in Oakland or San Jose. Could you finish that statement of what you mean by that? I mean that it's 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 not a regional phenomenon. You know, this is not something uh, I guess is touching on a comment that you made earlier. Uh, It's something that is happening to all of us. Right now, the idea was, oh, that this is going to be divided amongst and along class. Right. So if I move to a better neighborhood, then that won't happen there. But it does. Uh, I mean, that's that's kind of the story of Philip, right, Uh, in Teaneck, New Jersey, right? That it wasn't supposed to happen there, but it did. Let's talk about that story for a a moment. The story of of a teenage boy who is shot in the back, I believe, by police. Yeah. The outcry of the area because Teaneck prided itself on being 
quote, progressive and understanding and people moving there so that even as white people, they felt that they were contributing to a society that would be more equitable in which everyone would be accepted or or valued in some way. And here this terrible thing happens. What struck you most about the conversation about that occurrence? If anything, I would say it's a similarity, a striking similarity that it has to the conversations that we're still having today. You know, um, these are uh, some of the same outcries, if not the same. Uh, outcries that happen all over America uh, for Black lives uh, that are lost uh, due to, I I don't even want to say police intolerance, but police brutality towards Black faces and Black bodies, you know, and in some ways that's very upsetting because you can feel uh, that the work that we do is fruitless. Uh, But there have been advances, right? And, and things have changed uh, and they're continuing to change, uh, albeit at uh, probably a slower pace than most of us might like, uh, but they are changing. And I think if we stay and remain stalwart uh, in our actions, you know, we'll get there. When we come back, more with our guest, attorney, civil rights attorney, DeWitt Lacey, after the break. with my guest today. He is a civil rights attorney, DeWitt Lacey from California. And we've had a conversation, kind of a a generalized overview from our shared experience being on a podcast, which is how we met, called Color Lines, From Philip to Floyd. And it really did look at issues of policing in our time and across the spectrum of time from 1990 to 2020, the Philip of the young man in Teaneck, New Jersey, who was killed by police in 1990, and the Floyd being obviously George Floyd, who was killed in 2020. I want to ask you about our experience on that shared podcast. And before I do, here's a clip. Just for a moment, imagine your community became another Ferguson or Minneapolis or Louisville or any American community where police killed African-Americans under questionable circumstances. How would you react? How would your city react? How would your government react? These are the questions that we will explore in the coming weeks in Color Lines, from Philip to Floyd, a podcast exploring the American tragedy of race, police shootings, and the search for justice. In 1990, the town of Teaneck, New Jersey, a community renowned as a national model of racial unity and peace, became embroiled in a confrontation over race and dignity and fairness after a white police officer shot and killed a black teenager. Riots broke out. The town engaged in an examination over its racial policies from the police department to the school system. Were the efforts of Teaneck, New Jersey, dating back to the 1950s to build racial harmony real 
Why didn't those efforts prevent another tragedy of police killing an African-American under questionable circumstances? Journalist Mike Kelly's book, Color Lines, investigates Teaneck's history and what the shooting exposed about the racial dilemma that America faced then and continues to face today. Now, with Mike and some of the most prominent voices in civil rights and police reform, from U.S. Senator Cory Booker to Congresswoman Karen Bass to the Reverend Al Sharpton and others, we're looking back to try to find the best way to move forward. How did TNET change? What struck me on our panel was one of the police representatives who was from a town in which they are have become known as a model city for firing their entire police force and then rehiring those that they had recertified as being more professional and more acceptable to the city. But what stood out for me was his statement that his city realized it had to respond differently because 94% of the population is minority. And I didn't say it during that because he was, quote, one of the good guys, and I did not want to be perceived in in that limited time as attacking a good guy. But if you're 94% minority, I think at some point you're supposed to be a majority. Yeah, yeah, well... Sure. Two months after we've done that panel. And here I am, and that is still standing out for me as really critical. Number one, what it what the word minority means. And number two, what we connote that a majority means. Who is a minority? Who is a majority? What it ultimately means for the dynamic and what it says about what we're going through. Um, you know, 94% minority is really quite a statement. So at what point do Black people and people of color command, respect, and control who represents them and their own destiny? Uh, That is a fabulous question, and I won't pretend that I have a perfect answer to. But uh, I'll say this. In some part, uh, there is uh, a personal responsibility that we share in that as well, right? That we have to recognize our own power, right? Uh, and and what it means uh, when we stand together or work uh, towards a a singular goal or maybe a multitude of goals. Minority, in my mind, has always meant a person of color. People, uh, as Curtis Mayfield uh, said, of a darker hue or who are darker than blue, right? (laughs) And (laughs) uh, that's what I've always taken it to mean, right? Uh, and obviously, uh, it seems that that uh, speaker uh, adopted the idea that minority means person of color. No matter what the statistics say, because in in that uh, locale, 
people of color aren't the minority. They're the majority. <laughs> and he's the minority. Uh, but, and he's still in charge. But he's still in charge. Uh, and part of that has to do with systemic racism, right? Um, but there is no systemic racism. <laughs> there is. Of course there is. You know, look, I look, I get it. I know people don't want to believe it, right? People, it, it hurts to look at the ugly in ourselves uh, as Americans, right? And as much uh, as we want many folks, uh, especially many of our, our, our white neighbors and friends, uh, comrades, uh, may want to distance themselves uh, from the ugliness of the past uh, for obvious reasons, right? Nobody wants to be called a racist or be associated with racism. However, it is not as simple as just... Even the racists don't. Even, even the racists don't. <laughs> even the, the flat-out and obvious bigots don't want to be called a racist. <laughs> no, matter, no matter how high that pointed hat is and how That's white right. the sheet is they're wearing. No, wearing they want to talk about their way of life. <laughs> we're, we're white nationalists. You know, or, oh you know, my God. you know, just call it what it is, you know. So nobody wants to be associated with that. And I, I think uh, because of that, you know, people have found these different and new words in order to describe the relationships and or groups of people and the relationships between those groups of people. A minority is, is one, right? Minority. What does it mean? Look, I'm black. I tell people all the time I'm black. And, you know, that's just the way I was raised. You say it loud, you know, I'm black and I'm proud. Other folks uh, might want to say African-American, and that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, some people say, you know, minority or our inner city population, our urban population, right? But I think what it all means, it's another coded way to say the folks who aren't sitting at the table to make decisions. Okay. Um, and but that is changing. That is changing, uh, not only even with uh, black people, uh, but as far as sex and gender are uh, concerned as well. You know, there are definitely more women uh, being a part of the role of policy making and uh, power moves uh, than there were, you know, 40 years ago. So things are changing, albeit, you know, slowly things are changing. Things are changing, but when you have a majority of people who are, quote, a minority, so a majority of people who are not supposed to have that seat at the table, you realize that when you have communities that are, quote, majority, minority, what you have is a majority of people who don't have the other verticals. We went through a period of time in New York City where the question was, why are so few black police officers becoming detectives? And one of the requirements at that point, I don't know what it is now, but at that point when the conversation was being had, was that part of their trajectory in the department had to be undercover police for a period of time. And too many black police officers were getting shot, even though they had on the color of the day. 
which was the way undercovers identified themselves. They may have had on the color of the day, but they did not have the color of the skin that was required. And so they were being jacked up by, quote, friendly fire. And that was what was systemically keeping too many officers off the ladder that would allow them to rise. So I mention all of that, you know, for context. I do believe, as the FBI has noted, that there are white uh, supremacist organizations that have infiltrated police departments around the nation. Uh, And I don't think that should be overlooked. What percentage of that place to each police department around America? I can't say. But if it's five and 10 percent, that's five and 10 percent too many for me. When you appear in court as a civil rights attorney, when you appear as an advocate with your experience, who are you seeing? Are you a minority? Are you in the minority? And how do you climb through that hurdle? You know, it's tough. Uh, It it is definitely uh, not something uh, 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 for the, uh, the faint hearted, <laughs> you know, you got to have a thick skin, uh, because, uh, many of the structures that we talked about as far as systemic racism, uh, are alive and present in our judicial system. Now, uh, that does not mean that I'm, I'm saying that the, the bench is uh, full of racist judges. No, that's obviously not true, but there certainly are some that are there, right? Uh, There certainly are some that have an idea of of what an attorney looks like, what they should sound like, uh, what they should be advocating. Some do not take kindly to the idea of criticism being launched at law enforcement. Um, So, you know, uh, in that regard, yes, I think I am in the minority. Uh, Am I a minority because of my black skin? Maybe by some folks' uh, definition, I am. I like to think of it as, I mean, look, uh, one of the things I think that's happening in this nation, uh, Dr. Adams, is, you know, uh, there will very soon be more people of color uh, than there are, you know, white folks. And so white folks won't be the quote unquote majority uh, anymore so to speak, at least the way it had been defined previously. Um, so, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of buckle and, and scoff a little bit at the, the label of, of minority uh, uh, because, you know, I think it carry, carries with it too many connotations that I don't want to accept for myself, too many limitations, right? Um, and I don't want to exactly. be limited by that. Exactly. It also is a lack of identity. I'm always struck by the idea that white people are always white people. Um, But we have gone from being lumped together because we're non-white. I mean, we were colored. Then we were non-white to lump everybody together. Then we were minority because that went out of vogue but white people always have an identity i have no problem with alliances none Mm -hmm. but i do have a problem with this standardization of what it means to have an identity which is white and the 
lack of identity that is accorded Black, Brown people, which is why personally I reject the term BIPOC. I also don't know what it means, and I do know what it means, but when I first heard it, I didn't know what it meant, and I didn't think we needed another term that distanced us from each other and ourselves. Um, But coming back to the situation of you as a Black or an African-American attorney going into a legal system that clearly has problems. Um, Have you ever been in a majority situation in one of those legal encounters? Have you ever had, you know, Black police officers, Black judges, Black attorneys working together on on a case? Not all at once, no. Uh, you know, o- over over the span of time, sure, I've been in front of uh, Black judges. Uh, and over a span of time, sure, uh, there have been Black uh, police officers who have sat sure. on the other side of the table, some who I've represented, even. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and over the span of time, yes, there have been one or two uh, Black juries in, th- in cases that I've been on, right? But I've seen uh, cases that our firm has done uh, and, you know, where there have been no white people on the jury, to which I was amazed when I walked in. It's like, how did this happen? Right. Oh, my gosh. I would love to have that jury where it was all people of color, where it was black people, Asian people, Latino people, you know, uh, Middle Eastern people. I would love that. Right. And specifically, Uh, why? Why would you want that kind of jury? Because I think they can understand this whole idea of otherism more than white people can. You know, a lot of white people uh, may not understand that, may have never even been forced to confront that idea in their head. So uh, in the course of a jury trial, uh, it's a lot to ask somebody to come to grips with and then also (laughs) then consider the facts that have been put to them. But uh, uh, more uh, folks of color, uh, can understand that. They understand what it means to walk into the grocery store and to be thought of as the other or the bank, right? Um, uh, much more than, than white folks. Now, it's true that there's some people of color who might have problems with that as well, uh, even some Black people, to be fair and honest, but most can't. I think most I can speak to, I can talk. To be fair and honest, but, but it is a bit of a false equivalency. Sure. Because if you get one in a hundred. Um, sure. No. Who doesn't? No. <laughs> you it, know, it, I mean, it, it's it's such a. That's fair. That's fair. And and I didn't mean to imply. No, I don't mean from you. I, I'm saying that for the, for the audience. You're you're on the front lines every day. I yeah. do not mean it for you. Um, but but I do know living in uh, communities that are definitely not majority black and nowhere near majority black. I mean, in in a couple of towns in which I've lived, the number of black people doesn't even constitute a percentage. Yeah. And um and I do know what it means to to be in the local newspaper office um where my column had been launched and and hear this police scanner, male black looks suspicious. And so I said to the 
editor of the newspaper who had the scanner on his desk, what is that? He said, oh my goodness, all day long, that's what you hear. Male black looks suspicious in the grocery store. Male black looks suspicious on the road. Male black, well, listening to that then gave me an understanding why one of the other black families I knew on a Sunday father and son outside their own home where police absolutely know where we live when when these communities are like this and they are surrounded and stopped by police for being looking suspicious outside their own home because they were fixing their mailbox yeah so we know what we're referring to and therefore it sounds like what you're saying is when you're before a group of Black, Latino, Asian people in general, this otherism, it means there are certain things you don't have to explain. That's right. That's right. It saves me time. You did, that, that is perfectly said. There are certain things I don't have to explain to a group of folks who look like me. Uh, and I can probably fairly and safely assume they understand uh, quite well. Uh, without having to go into some long tenured explanation of uh, otherism uh, or racism. And bring uh, out charts and statistics. Yeah, and I don't, yeah, I don't have to do all that. <laughs> I don't have to do all that. You, you, you okay, so when you've had that kind of jury, is there a case that you can talk about when you've had the all-white jury versus the all-black jury or all people of color jury? Well, I've never had the all people of color jury. I've had have juries where there is or, or are people of color on the jury, right? Uh, but I've never had a jury where it's been uh, all uh, people of color. It's certainly not all black. Um, uh, but I'll tell you, you know, I think what I have to do um, is tread carefully amongst uh, around this idea of racism, if the jury is an all-white jury, you just have to because of what we talked about before, that nobody wants to be called a racist. Nobody wants to be associated with racism. You know, if you say anything uh, uh, that caused uh, something racist, uh, you know, it'll turn some people off and they won't listen. Uh, but you're a you civil rights attorney and That's racism right. is at the core of the reason people come to you for your practice. So sure. how do you talk? How do you deal with racism by not dealing with racism? Well, you have to, as you said, bring out the charts. <laughs> you have to bring out the statistics and, you know, or really you have to bring out reason. Right. And one of the ways I think I've been able to do that is to explain that, look, would we expect these type of things to happen in a more affluent neighborhood? And the answer is almost always no, no, police. We wouldn't expect police to act like this, right? However, it's tolerated in this neighborhood for what? For whatever reason, it's unlawful because the law says that we should be treated equally in the eyes of the law, no matter what socioeconomic uh uh, I guess, group we come from, no matter what ethnic group we come from, we all should be treated equally. And folks can get that. Uh, folks can understand that. And, you know, I think generally 
uh, folks believe that and appreciate that. Is there a case that you can talk about um, where things did not go the way they should have gone on account of race and vice versa, where they did go the way they should have gone and perhaps the person was guilty? Gotcha. Uh, I'll talk to you about a a case in uh, San Francisco. This uh, young man, uh, his name was Sam, and, and the case is now concluded. But he was outside of his apartment uh, on the west side of San Francisco, out by the beach. Uh, and he was smoking a cigarette because he's not allowed to smoke cigarettes in his apartment. You know, the landlord and landowner didn't want people smoking inside the apartment. So he smokes outside of his apartment, uh, right near a fence next to his, uh, his building. Unbeknownst to him, maybe about an hour and a half before, uh, about a mile away, uh, there had been some burglary that happened. Nobody seen the burglar. Uh, nobody uh, had any evidence of, of what the burglar looked like, any description whatsoever. Uh, yet these officers decided to roam this neighborhood, which uh, it's a residential neighborhood. There's thousands of people <laughs> who live here. Uh, and go look out for a black male. <laughs> because uh, in there are uh, only some, 10 million of them, but that's okay. Yeah, exactly. And, and it, it, it struck a chord with me when you said a male black, right? Because that was the description of, you know, uh, allegedly uh, that had been given for be on the lookout for some potential uh, burglars uh, in this particular neighborhood of San Francisco uh, some weeks ago. We think they're young black men. Okay, well, what does that mean? You know, is it a tall young black man? Is it a short young black man? Do they got beards? Do they have tattoos? You know, do you know their names? Uh, what about, uh, you know, uh, any type of uh, past uh, circumstances where law enforcement might have come in contact with these folks? You know, you can't just send law enforcement out to stop every young black man. But that was the justification that law enforcement used uh, to rile up Sam a slam up against the wall. He had already had a head injury uh, previously, uh, and it caused him to start having uh, grand mal seizures, mm-hmm. um, uh, which affected his uh, employment abilities and opportunities. And I will never forget uh, the moment I'm sitting in court and the judge uh, speaks to me and says, well, Mr. Lacey, but didn't he fit the description? and i uh much like your response right now um and this was an asian judge and i said wow i said your honor if if you're having if we're having trouble you know discerning that issue then you know i'm really concerned right now uh because there was no description of any burglars there was no description of any burglars uh and even if it was, you know, based on this wide and speculative uh, understanding that there were some young black males who were burglarizing places, that gives no justification just to stop every black male. When I mean, does that mean that any burglary that's committed there is committed by young black males? Come on, it's preposterous. It would never hold up in court. Uh, yet here I am in court arguing this ridiculous notion, uh, and that was something uh, where. 
you know, we ended up resolving the matter and, you know, he was compensated, although I think he should have been awarded far more. Um, but it, it really stuck with me, right? And you can um, never heal his life. Because I can't heal his life. Uh, and I desperately wanted to, to a guy who wasn't doing anything wrong, who was just sitting outside of his house smoking a cigarette. Yet here comes law enforcement. Uh, and apparently uh, many felt that they were justified in their actions. You know, I, we had neighbors coming outside saying, hey, he lives here. He lives here. Uh, cops didn't listen. They grabbed this guy and throw him against the wall. And, you know, uh, and, uh, it was, to me, kind of a marker of what many folks have to go through uh, all the time. Uh, that is definitely an instance where I think it didn't necessarily work out where it should. Of when course, there's been, a, there's been other instances where somebody may have been guilty of something beforehand, right? Um, and or may have been a part of some group that had done something beforehand. Now, it doesn't mean that they should be killed, right? Uh, and it, it resolved. You know, we had uh, fair uh, judges uh, and advocates on both sides. Uh, and that time it worked out uh, a little bit better. Um, you know, but, you know, I think those are the, the rare circumstances. Uh, most of the time it is the circumstance where, you know, uh, there is opposition, certainly uh, from defense counsel uh, uh, who represents law enforcement. And many times there's trepidation uh, from uh, the bench uh, for seeming to be uh, um, too light handed uh, for uh, plaintiffs who are criticizing law enforcement. When we come back, more with our guest, DeWitt Lacey. More after the break here on the Janice Adams Show. Janice Adams show with my guest, DeWitt Lacey. He is a civil rights attorney who practices in California and elsewhere. Mostly in California, but I'm licensed in any federal court throughout America. Before the break, we were talking about cases that went well and cases that didn't. We've also spoken about, you're saying with all that's going on, the real issue is What's next? Where do we go from here? I want to ask you, with this assault on voting rights, jury pools being selected from voter registration when we are being discouraged from, force of discouraged from voting, and if you can't vote, why would you register? Where do we go from here? What is next? Because this is we're at a very dangerous juncture. Well, I, I think you're right in recognizing uh, the juncture we're at as being very dangerous and pivotal. Uh, I think we're at one of those points where we get to decide if we move on to be a greater nation or if we are, so to speak, doomed to repeat the mistakes of our past. Uh, and it is an important juncture for us to recognize right now 
and uh, really uh, take a discerning eye at what steps we need to take. Uh, Excuse me, before you go on to that, let's be specific when you say, you know, the the umbrella, where we are as a nation. What is at stake in your corner of the world? What is at stake in California, which may not be imposing some of these restrictions on voting, but where the climate in certain communities is definitely going to pick up on that. What's at stake here when we talk about voting rights impacting legal systems? Well, it it means the folks who are going to be deciding and making decisions about the direction we take may not look like us or hold our values, okay? And I think what what is at stake is we have to make sure that we continue to have a seat and increase our presence at the table. And when we were not at the table previously, when we did not have people on juries in, obviously, if you don't have black and brown people being able to vote properly, then you're not going to have black people in sitting on the bench. That's right. You're not going to have black people in leadership positions, whether elected or non-elected leadership positions, making certain policy decisions. So I really mean from your position on the front lines, what is at stake at this time? I, I think our progress as a nation, I mean, I, I you know, is at stake. We've made a lot of uh, efforts uh, in our past uh, to get to the point where someone like me can be a civil rights attorney, does have the opportunity to get uh, an education and, and, you know, whatever the means necessary uh, in order for us to hold the positions that we do now. And I think if we don't act now, all of that is in jeopardy because the folks on the other side of that coin don't want to see uh, DeWitt Lacey or Janice Adams uh, in these positions of power and or influence. They don't want to hear the cases for police misconduct and abuse. They think there's too many of them. So if we don't have the right people on the benches, then you can you could probably bet that we'll see a strengthening of things like qualified immunity, which makes it really tough to hold a federal lawsuit against uh, officers. Then we won't have uh, sufficient verdicts that will encourage law enforcement departments to change their practices uh, from uh, some of the uh, racist and or uh, unfair and brutal uh, practices of the past. DeWitt Lacey, thank you so much for being my guest here today on The Janice Adams Show. It's a privilege to meet you. Thank you, Dr. Adams, for having me. My thanks to civil rights attorney DeWitt Lacey and to you for joining us here on the Janice Adams Show today. For the podcast, more about our guest, links to his work, and color lines from Philip to Floyd, the Upward Media Partners podcast that brought us together, visit my website, 
JaniceAdams.com. In cooperation with WJFF, Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole and Patricio Rabayo, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved.